take time to consider this important topic. So we're doing a series, and we'll be uh, in a in actually Genesis today. So you can maybe turn to chapter one as we get ready to, to go there. And by the way, if I if you don't know me, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I haven't been here uh, bringing God's word for about a month or more, but glad to be back. Thanks for your prayers as I was recovering from surgery and different things, and, and I'm grateful uh, to, to God to be here this morning. And I'm grateful to be able to address the topic of, of Christmas. Uh, maybe a better word for Christmas is the incarnation, and that's a big word. Uh, it just means taking on flesh, uh, and that's what Christmas is really about, that God the infinite God of the universe, the God who made all things, the source of all reality, who cannot be contained even in his creation and all of its vast expanses and, and glory, has taken on human flesh and become a, a human being, a normal, regular human being. Uh, and that is worthy of, of just contemplation and worship and celebration in and of itself. And, and I would want to submit to you that sometimes we we perhaps um, reduce who Christ is to his death and resurrection, and certainly that is the core of, of who he is and what he came for. Uh, but sometimes we do to the neglect of the reality of the incarnation, the reality and the wonder that God would take on flesh, that God would, would humble himself in such a profound way and identify with us in such a profound way. That is, again, just worthy of worship in and of itself. And, and there's much purpose, of course, in the incarnation. Uh, and so it's worthy to take time. Um, if there weren't a Christmas holiday already, I would want us to invent one uh, so we could take time to consider this glorious truth and all of its implications. So that's what we'll be doing over the next three Sundays is just talking about the incarnation and how it relates to, to different things. And so this Sunday, I want to talk about the incarnation and the image of God. Uh, and, and I think that in it, there's, there's much to be learned. Um, that's how God is. He, he doesn't do things and just kind of keep them in the abstract. Uh, his truth is a truth that's robust, and it works itself through in every way. And so this topic today, though it may sound kind of theoretical and abstract, the incarnation and the image of God, has huge implications in real ways for us in our, in our normal lives. And so I want to dig into this. First, though, uh, before we actually look at the, the answer... I want to ask the question, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? Uh, it's a big question, and I would say it's one of the most important questions you can ask. The most important question is, who is God, and what does that mean to me? But probably second with that, and it goes right along with it, is what does it mean to be human? And I would submit to you that in our culture, there are all sorts of answers out there to that question. Even if people haven't, like, objectively considered the question, they're living in light of some sort of assumption about what it is to be human. They've assumed an answer that drives their lives and shapes their lives and their decisions and their relationships and everything. And there are all sorts of answers out there. Um, our culture is struggling to get a clear grasp, and we're in a pluralistic culture. That's the reality. So there are all sorts of answers to this question. Some, some would say, uh, well, it's just the ability to to reason, to think con uh, consciously. Others would say it's just to be self-aware, that you know, aware that I exist and there's something about that. Others would say more technical things like the ability to create and use language or tools. Others would say, well, it's just simply being the human species and however that came about, we don't know and, and probably the best way to explain the human species is, is simply biologically. 
that, that we have DNA, and then DNA kind of determines everything else, and that's just who we are. And just you just go with that. And, and then there are ideas out there that it's like, well, we don't really know, and that doesn't really matter. It's really kind of whatever you want it to be. Uh, it's fluid, and it's up to you. And that is a slippery slope that we're seeing more and more. But all these, all these answers really determine a whole lifestyle and a, and a whole way of perceiving self, of course, and everyone else and existence. So this is a really important question. And the incarnation answers it profoundly for us. Uh, so I want to take time to dig into the incarnation and how it speaks to this question and answers it uh, from Scripture. God, God actually thinks this is a really important thing for us to consider. Uh, he wants to give us an answer. He's a, he's a gracious God. Because he could just say, well, hey, live you know, self-defined and figure it out yourselves. But he's not like that. He's merciful. He's loving. He's good. And so he's revealed these truths to us in Scripture. So right off the bat, very beginning of the Bible, we have an answer to this big question. So let's pray, and then we'll read the, read the section of Scripture. And we'll be looking at some other sections as well. And we'll ask the Lord to teach us. We, we need to know the answer for this question. So, Lord, thank you for who you are in your mercy and grace, that you don't leave us alone, you love us, you're active in your creation, and you've more than just made yourself known through creation, but through your word itself. Uh, you have revealed yourself and what we need to know, most importantly, about ourselves and, and about you. So thank you. And I pray, Lord, as we look at the scriptures today, and as I teach and proclaim your word, would, would you, Lord, speak to us? Would you do uh, something that's really miraculous? you, the living God, would speak to us in our minds and our hearts and change us and lead us in these truths. Because you're not just about the abstract. You want experience of truth. So lead us in these ways and glorify your worthy name, we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. This is the account of God's creation. And it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them and God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every green plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God's word from Genesis chapter 1. What I want to do is, is look at this passage and others as well, and answer that question, what does it mean to be human? And I want to answer in light of the scriptures and in light of who Jesus is and taking on flesh, God taking on flesh. And so I, I, I'll tell you up front what I believe the scriptures teach us. First, that we are God's image. We are God's image. That's what it means to be human. We are God's image. But also we need to know with that, the storyline of the Bible teaches us that we have marred God's image. We are God's image. We have marred God's image. And then finally, Jesus restores God's image through his incarnation, his life, death, and 
resurrection. So let's begin. We are God's image. Here in chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, and in particular, uh, verses 26 through 27, we're taught that God says, let us make man in our image. It's interesting to, to note that it uses the plural for God. Let us make man in our image. Um, and there's been a lot of debate about this. I think the very best answer is that God is speaking of himself as us. Because God is plural and singular. God is three in one. He is the Trinity. Uh, he is a God of three persons, one being. It's beyond a, our ability to grasp. It's beyond our ability even to imagine. Uh, we have to just understand that's how he is presented in Scripture. He's revealed that way. He's one in three, three in one. And so he says, let us make man in our image. Now that has implications for what we look like. Um, I think that's the best way to understand it. If you look through the passage, you'll see later on he talks about, um, he talks in, in chapter three about uh, this, this idea of, of, of making mankind in his destiny. And, and he speaks of himself in the plural again there. And, and then the whole section of scripture the temptation here by the devil uh, in chapter 3 is the devil saying that, that if you follow my plan, you can be like God. It's really interesting to note that. But God has already said, I'm making you like me. You are made in my image. And so the devil jumps in there and tries to twist what that looks like and how it's done. And so the whole context is about God and being made in God's image. So the us is not God and the angels or God and somebody else. It's God himself because that's all it's addressing here. It's about being made in his image. And so we are made in his image. It's an amazing thing to think about. Um, that God makes mankind. And he makes mankind to image himself. He actually, later on, and this was all written originally... Uh, by Moses, right? So as the people of Israel were being brought out of Egypt, out of captivity, uh, to, to sin and evil and so forth in Egypt, God's making them his special people. God gives them the revelation of who he is through Moses. So Moses writes this history. And in that context of coming out of Egypt, they are forbidden to make any images of God. Because God has made one image of himself, that's mankind. God reflects himself through mankind, and, and we are called to represent him. And we are unique in that. Nothing else in creation reflects the image of God in that way. Now, certainly creation reveals the glory of God and even the character of God, but not in the way that we reflect his image and his likeness. We see this throughout scripture, this whole line of thinking about mankind as made in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 9, murder is forbidden on the basis of us being in the image of God. So, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, it says, Whoever shed, sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in, in the image of God he made man. We are made in the image of God, therefore murder is wrong. Because when you're murdering a, a person, you're essentially murdering God. Because people are made in the image of God. People are the image of God. Uh, James chapter 3, verse 9, so this is later on in the Bible. He says, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Uh, he's, he has a contrast there, right? So with our tongues, and, and the whole context where he's, he's talking about speech, wonderful chapter to study. He's talking about speech and how we use speech. We, we use our tongue, our language, to bless God and curse men. And what's the parallel? With one, we bless God, and with one, we essentially curse God. 
because we're cursing men who are made in the image of God. So do you see what James is doing there? That he's putting us uh, on parallel with God, not, of course, in our essence. We're not God. We'll never be God. We are distinct from God. We are creations. But nevertheless, we are the image of God. We are the ones that project what God is like on the earth. We are the image of God on the earth. That's what humanity is. This has so many implications, and I believe it's the only solid an immovable foundation for the dignity of man. Our culture tries to talk about respect and tolerance and dignity of man, but they don't have a sound basis that will endure. And so things come and go, and, and those opinions change. But, but here is a basis based on the Creator Himself and His eternal Word that we are the image of God. Therefore, we must respect one another. Therefore, we must regard one another with a, with a, a substantial dignity, because we're made in the image of God. We are God's offspring created by him. Now, Scripture will go on to teach us, and of course our own histories teach us, that there's something that's gone wrong with this, obviously. Cue the music. Um, there's something that's gone wrong with this, obviously. Uh, there's, there's been a corruption that's come in, sin has come in. Uh, and mankind doesn't quite look like the, the image of God, but even amidst the brokenness, and I'll get to that shortly, uh, we still retain the image of God as human beings. That continues. Now, you might be thinking, okay, I got it, I think. You've been saying it over and over again, so okay, I'll grant you that. But what does that mean? Well, I think first we need to understand it, it means that we, we are the image of God. Um, it's important to understand the difference between maybe saying we, we have some resemblance to God to saying we are the image of God because it's part of our identity. It's part of who we are. And as such, as those made in the image of God, we look like God in many ways. Now, we're not God, so we don't look like him in every way, of course. But in many substantial ways, we look like God, the triune God. We are rational. We are thinkers. We think about things. We think through things. We try to fit things together. We don't, don't like to just leave things as they are. We want to see how does this work? How does, how does this happen? And what can I learn? What can I do with this? We're thinkers. We're rational. Um, God is rational. And by the way, th this isn't to say there aren't any of these elements in the rest of, of creation and animals and so forth, but not at this level, not in this unique way. We think we think through things, and God himself reasons and thinks and ponders and considers. We are moral beings. We're not simply animals operating on instinct, operating off of a biological determinism, it's just who you are and your DNA driving you, your body chemistry. No, we, we think about right and wrong. We think about good and evil. We think in, in those terms, and we live life in those terms. We are moral, and God himself, of course, is a moral being. We are relational beings. We are very relational, and, and we need to understand that. We are meant to be in community. We are meant to form substantial relationships. As hard and difficult as they may be at times, we're created for relationship. That's what the church is about, coming together as a community. That's what communities and cities are about. That's what families are about. God himself is relational. When he says, let us make man in our image, it's plural. He's been in an eternal 
relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally. So relationship is not just like an add-on thing. It is sub- it's fundamental to reality because God is relational, and we are relational. We're volitional. We make choices. We choose good or evil. We make real choices, and, and they have implications, and, and there's accountability and culpability with those choices. We, we are volitional. God, of course, is volitional. He chooses, and he always chooses the best. We're creative. We appreciate the abstract. We appreciate beauty. Uh, last night we were watching Lady and the Tramp, the, the new one, and uh, our dog actually was watching with us. It was pretty cool. But I don't think she was like, oh, this is a beautiful film. I love how the, you know, the storyline goes, the tension here, and how it gets resolved and stuff. She's not doing that. She's just thinking, there's a dog making dog noises on that screen. Uh, she's not at, thinking at a deeper level. We, but yet we watch things and we say, wow, beautiful scenery. Look at that Victorian house, so beautiful so forth and so on. We are, we are creative in that way. We appreciate beauty. We appreciate abstract things. Well, that's who God is. He's the supreme creator. And we are creative like God. He communicates as well. He's a communicating God. We communicate. We use words. We relate through words. It's really amazing that we use this. We put sounds together. We create words that represent nouns and verbs and we put them all together and I can say all this stuff and you guys actually know what I'm thinking, I hope, um, as I go through this, right? We communicate. Well, that's who God is. He's a communicator. He, he creates through his word. He creates, he creates all of the universe through his word. And ultimately, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, is the word himself. It's amazing. It's who we are. We are a ruling creation. We're called to oversee. And we see that in the storyline. That God just doesn't put us in creation and just say you're an equal member in creation. We're not just part of, of creation in that way, though we, we are certainly part of creation. We're called to rule over it and use all these God-given things to do it in a way that reflects his glory and goodness. So we're supposed to bring order and blessing and goods. We're ruling. Certainly God is a ruling creator. And we are worshipers. We cannot get away from the reality that we are worshipers. No matter who we are, what our thinking is and what we do, we live for what we think is most worthy. That's just at the core of who we are. That's who God is. God knows what's most worthy. He loves what's most worthy. He loves, certainly, uh, himself among the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's his love and enjoyment of each other. And, and he loves his people. He loves his creation. He calls us in to value what is most worthy. That's the problem, right? We have a worship problem in our fall away from God and the, the pure image of God, that we now worship other things that aren't most worthy. And we, we change the order that God put things in. We exalt things that are not meant to be at the center, but to be pointing to the very center, which is God himself. I hope that makes sense. And those are just all different ways that, that we reflect God, that we look like God. But, but at the core is that we are in the image of God. And I think we get this, right? I mean, we get this in real life. I, I was just watching, um, I don't know if you saw the, a press interview with Stephen Belichick, uh, Coach Belichick's son, um, who's a coach on the, the Patriots. And I'm sorry if you're not a football fan. I, I know I use too many football illustrations. But anyhow, if you saw the interview, um, Stephen's about 30, 32, I think he is. He's the safeties coach. And they did an interview. And he was, he was the image of his father in the interview. It was amazing, actually. You had to, you had, I think we have a picture of him. You had to see the interview. He sounded and acted just like him. He, just, he looks like Bill 
uh, 30 years younger with a beard and blonde hair. Uh, and, and not only did he look like Bill, but he sounded like him. And he gave the interview in just the same way that Coach Belichick does. He didn't answer questions, really. He just gave those sort of, you know, those, you know how he does the, the scholar and the deep voice. And just, uh, I don't know. You don't really, uh, that's not really what's going on. You know? And just, that's exactly what he did. Um, he, did the, he did the interview just the same. He was elusive, the deep monotone voice, the scowl, the avoidance of eye contact, uh, everything. He was the image of his dad. That's what it means, right? He's his son. He's the image of his dad. We are made by God to be the image of God. We're to look like him in that way. And so there's all these different ways, of course, we look like him. That's important to understand. Lots of implications of that. I think it changes how we view other humans, right? When we understand that, we should have a very high regard and respect for all people, no matter what they're like, no matter what their background, no matter what their strengths and weaknesses might be, no matter what even how, how broken and marred that image might be in them, it still is there. And so, so Christians and those who believe this truth in Scripture should have the, the deepest regard for their fellow human beings and a deep respect and love for those good things that are there. Now there's more to the story, we know, right? Um, there's more to be learned in Scripture. There's more to face in our own experience. And, it, and the Bible goes through all this in chapter 3 of Genesis. It explains what happened. And I don't have time to dig into that. I'd love to, but I don't have time. Just to give you the summary, this beautiful and glorious image of God called humanity, male and female, is thoroughly damaged and defaced by the horrors of a broken relationship with God. And that's introduced in chapter 3, and that continues through history. What our original parents, mankind's parents, chose is also our choice following them. We chose something short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We've chosen to corrupt things. We've chosen to do things our way. We've chosen to try to become like God in our own terms instead of God's terms, and so we've corrupted this whole image that we were supposed to bear. There's a deep scar on mankind in our image bearing. We fell from glory into corruption and evil. Now, we still retain the image of God, but it's marred, it's scarred, it's broken. It's not the original, it's not the final intent either. We're, we're changed. Again, we bear that image, but we're different. I, uh, I don't know if you guys are Star Trek fans and remember the uh, next generation, Captain Picard, but the Borg, do you remember the Borg? Um, the Borg was this, uh, was this computer, basically, that, that was intelligent, and it was taking over, uh, the, the alien cyborg was taking over everything in its path. It got a hold of Captain Picard, assimilated him into the Borg. So there's a picture. Uh, so lower, that normal Captain Picard left, Borg assimilated Captain Picard on the right. He still looks like Captain Picard, but there's something different, right? He's got Borg in him. Um, he doesn't look too healthy there. Uh, he's kind of pale skin, and, and if, if you watched it, you know, he was different in his tone and so forth. He was substantially different, yet still Captain Picard. Well, sin is like the Borg. Sin, this broken relationship with God, has been introduced to all humanity. And though we retain the image of God, sin has come in and corrupted us. Now, the effects can look different. 
There can be different degrees of it, but, but if we're honest with ourselves, certainly we, we can step outside. We love to do it this way, right? We like to look at history and say how bad humans have been and how bad these things have uh, been that have gone on throughout history. But the reality is those people are just like us. And had we perhaps been in their circumstances and been in those situations and had those temptations short of the grace of God, we would have chosen the same thing and done some of the same sorts of things. So we need to be careful, right? We love, we love to, to say they're the bad ones and make ourselves feel better. But the reality, if we're honest, is we're all alike in our temptations and our failures. And we all have the Borg. Sin has, has compromised us. All of us. And so getting rid of this, this problem, restoring the image of God, is not just about fixing the other guy or fixing nations and, and ethnic groups and cultures and so forth. It's about fixing myself because I myself have been marred. It's a real tragic story as you, as you look at history and we look through Scripture. Scripture doesn't pull punches. The Bible, as you read through it, you'll see is very accurate and unabashed in portraying mankind in brokenness and need, and yet offers great hope. But Genesis chapter 6, later on in the story, it's really tragic. So he's created mankind, this glorious image. He, he falls from that place. Speaking of mankind as a whole, falls with Adam and Eve and brings all of mankind with them. And then there's all these terrible things that happen. And so in chapter 6, God, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he may, had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. I don't know if there's a more tragic statement in Scripture. This beautiful creation, which was supposed to image God in all these good and glorious ways, has now been so corrupted that certainly in the context of Genesis chapter 6, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I do think part of the context in Genesis chapter 6 is that the culture and mankind has, had gone so far down that path of evil that it had marred everybody. So everybody was like almost all Borg. And we can certainly go there. We could be as evil as possible. But even if we are short of what we see in Genesis 6, we still are polluted by sin. We are still corrupted. And our thoughts are full of evil. It's a tragedy, and it's a betrayal. God, in, in Genesis chapter 1, we see so much promise for mankind. We see this glorious creation, all that God would do, and yet, yet there's this corruption, there's this darkness, there's this fall, there's this failure, there's this betrayal. And we have all participated in it. We've betrayed the Creator in all His goodness and all His glory. We've chosen to exchange the glory of God and the glory of his intention for something else. It is tragic. And sorry for too many science fiction references, but I was thinking about the uh, overly memed uh, scene in Star Wars Revenge of the Sith where Obi-Wan confronts Anakin after Anakin had turned to the dark side. Um, Anakin has fallen from what he was intended to be into the darkness, and they fight, and there's a battle, and, 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 and Obi-Wan, the, representing the good, wins in this particular fight. 
and then has this exchange, and he, he cries out, you are the chosen one. It was said that you would destroy the Sith, not join them, bring balance to the force, not leave it in darkness. And Anakin replies, I hate you. Obi-Wan replies, you are my brother, Anakin. I loved you. What a picture of humanity. God makes us so that we would, would be his image on the earth, would reflect his glory, would, would bring blessing and goodness to creation, and we choose sin, we choose rebellion. And God certainly could say the sorts of things that Obi-Wan said. You were, the, you were the created one to bear my image. You were supposed to bring blessing and goodness to the earth, not evil. You were my creation. I loved you. That is the scene of Genesis 6 and then the reality of humanity. And we need to face it. And sorry, you're probably thinking, well, thank you for all the Christmas cheer, Paul, this morning. Um, but it, it's a reality we have to face because Christmas, we use light to represent Christmas. But light's only needed where there's darkness. And it's good to contemplate the reality of the darkness so that when we see the light, we value the light for what it is. It's just a reality. I mean, this is the story. This is truth. But the light doesn't matter as much to us if we don't see how dark the darkness is. And the Bible is very honest with this because it is what it is, but also because, it, because God wants us to know our need for the light. You don't know your need for light unless you're in darkness, unless you perceive the darkness around you. And, and we are in darkness in this fall into sin, into this corruption of the image of God. And yet in this context, God shines his light into the world. He brings light where there's darkness. He brings light through, through taking on flesh, becoming a human in the fullness of what that means. Taking on flesh, God humbles himself. He gets involved in, in the situation in a profound way. He had been involved through the storyline of the, of the scriptures, and he promised to get more involved. And here we have, as we celebrate at Christmas, the climax of getting involved, the apex of the story of his involvement. He takes on flesh. He becomes a man, a full human being, enters into our situation and our struggles and our need and our weakness. It says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So Jesus comes, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, takes on flesh, becomes Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is born in lowly circumstances to ordinary, even lowly people to make himself known and to restore the image of God. The, the Son of God comes not only as God in the flesh, but also as a real human being and as the fulfillment of all that God intended in his original creation, to image himself on the earth, to show himself on the earth, to bring blessing and goodness and order in his creation. And so the Son becomes the fulfillment of what we were supposed to do. 
And so Colossians 1 speaks of him, and certainly he's unique in this, but also like us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So he images God, and he images it in who he is and what he does as a result. And so we read through the Gospels, and we see what God looks like and what mankind is supposed to look like as we look at Jesus. He serves both those roles. He is the perfect image of God. And he was glad to become human and take on what it means to be human and to suffer with us. And so he images himself by taking on suffering as well and being a servant, the ultimate servant, lowering himself to serve us, to serve his Father. That is what humanity is meant to look like. We are called to serve and love others. And so Christ images this to the point of death, even death on the cross. Hebrews Chapter 2 says, For it was fitting that he from whom and by, all who, by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then Colossians chapter 1 goes on to say, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so part of his image bearing as the perfect human being was to suffer with us and to suffer to the point where he bore our sins on the cross. Because the wages of sin, the wages of our rebellion, the wages of our corruption that we choose is to live eternally in the consequences of that in separation from God. And yet God wants to restore the image of God on the earth. He wants to restore us to right relationship with himself. And in his justice and his goodness, he has to deal with our sin. He has to deal with what you have chosen to do in rebellion against him. You have made active choices. You are a volitional being. And there are just consequences for your choices that must be paid. And yet we can't pay those consequences really ourselves. Consequences of our rebellion is death, separation from God, and eternal death should we choose to continue in them. And yet God in his great mercy and love, Jesus, the God-man, in his identifying with us, took on our sins on the cross, bore them, identified with us at that level, and paid the just penalty in full on the cross as God poured out his holy justice on Jesus for our sake. And now through faith in him, through simply saying, you know what, I'm not going to choose to do it on my own. I'm not going to choose to define myself by my terms or the culture's terms, but by God's terms. I'm going to turn away from self-sufficiency and this rebellion and receive God's love, receive what he's done for me in Christ. Those, those simple faith... It's just turning and trusting. You are credited with Jesus' righteous life as if you had lived it. And all your sins are credited to him and he pays a penalty. You are forgiven and free in him. That's the good news of the gospel. Gospel just means good news. The good news of Christ. He He has done this for us. God in the flesh has done this for us. He has taken on humanity for this purpose. He has taken on humanity for this purpose also to restore the image of God in us and in his people. Because it isn't just 
that he died and took on our sins, there's all these implications that come with that. There's new life in him. There's the freedom of forgiveness. There's the freedom of a new identity. It, the original identity fulfilled in Christ that propels us into a new life. And now that we're unified with him through faith, we are connected with him in a profound way. And, and we can't quite understand it, but we are one with Christ through faith in him. And so in Scripture, it teaches us that that, that, that union drives the restoration of the image of God in, in us. So Colossians, actually, if you read through Colossians, it's a great study on the image of God and on how the image is restored. And if you look through Colossians chapter 2 and, and into chapter 3, you'll see all, all these, these things connected where Jesus is the image of God, and yet he's died for us, and now we're united with him. So chapter 3, verse 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And it goes on to explain this new life, this new self, created after the image of its creator. It says it right there in, in verse 10. I don't think we have that to project. But verse 10 says, this new self is now the image of God, the image of the creator. So Jesus comes, takes on humanity, becomes a perfect human being, fulfills all righteousness, shows us what it looks like to be human, truly human, and then dies in our place to rescue us from our corruption, to rescue us from the Borg, to live a new life, and now he says, take off that old stuff, throw it away, and live in newness of life in Jesus. Because you are now united with Jesus. That's what drives us, is our union with Jesus. It's already done, it's already yours if you trust in Christ. But it's also a process that you need to make choices in. So scripture teaches us about all, all these choices, all these ways of living. But it is ultimately our destiny through faith in Christ. So Romans chapter 8 says clearly, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to what? To be conformed to what? The image of his son. So if you are a believer, and the invitation is open to any and all who would trust to receive this and, ha and then know this, assume this as your destiny in God, to be conformed to the image of his son and in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And of course, the, the word in the original language means brothers and sisters. He's the firstborn and we're all following. We're to be made in the perfect image of the son who images God and we are to fulfill God's original plans. And by the way, it isn't just when you go to heaven, because Christ is going to come back to the earth and restore the earth, and that stuff in Genesis chapter 1 is going to be fulfilled. We see that in the end of the Bible, Revelation 22. We're going to live on the earth, it's going to be renewed, and we will then perfectly image God on the earth. And so scripture calls us to live in this reality, to behold Christ. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. But this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we look to Christ. That's part of the process. And we come together as his people because he's called us to this process to behold Christ, to remind each other of Christ, to proclaim Christ to one another, and to proclaim Christ to those who don't yet know him so that through all this we become more and more like him both individually and as a corporate people. 
The image of God is a, a key and central part of the storyline of the Bible. And the incarnation of Christ is, is at the core of the image of God. And so when you read your Bible and the storyline, I want you to understand this, the, the storyline of the image and how the incarnation fits into it and what it means for you. Now I hope as I conclude, it's not just abstract. You start to see, wow, I get this. And now I know, I think, the answer. What does it mean to be human? Ultimately, it means to look like Jesus. Individually, in our own personalities and gifts and so forth, but also corporately together, we are the body of Christ, to look like Jesus. One final illustration. There's, a, uh, I don't know if you were aware of the recent, recent uh, Da Vinci painting that was auctioned. They discovered a new one. Um, there were only so many out there, I think 15. Um, and they discovered this new one recently. It sold at auction at Christie's New York for the price of $450 million. That's almost a half a billion dollars for a painting. Um, the storyline is fascinating. Uh, it's, of course, it's Da Vinci, but back in 1958, there was a damaged portrait of Christ thought to be the work of an obscure painter that was sold at auction for $60. That painting on the left is that one. Sold for $60 in 1958. And then someone discovered that someone had painted over another painting. And they started to do their homework, and they realized the one underneath was a Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci. And so they restored it, they did the work, and then they ended up selling it for half a billion dollars. And just so you know, the guy who originally bought it didn't get any money out of it. <laughs> Someone did, but not him. Um, but it was only, it was a $60 throwaway painting. But underneath was a masterpiece worth almost a billion dollars. It's a picture, guys, of, of humanity. Underneath the corruption we may see in our own hearts and around us is a masterpiece worth far more than half a billion dollars. That masterpiece is Jesus himself, ultimately. And in him, he restores us to the image of God. That's what we're called to. That's the wonder of Christmas. He enters in to life and humanity so he can rescue us and restore this image just in closing, think of some of the implications of this. I've already hit on some of those. I think the first and most important one is just to realize, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you for entering in and rescuing us. And thank you for what we have in store, that we will be restored fully. When we, when we see him, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. And thank you that you're restoring us now. And thank you that you're restoring others as well. See, we have a mission, not just to be the image of Christ. We are, and that's so important. But as we are the image of Christ, we're to reflect that to the world so that they too can come to know this good news and live in this reality. So live in it and tell as many people as you can about this good news, about Christ who comes to restore the image of God through his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You are the image of God. You are the masterpiece. You are glorious. There's no one like you. 
And Lord, I pray during this season that can be so busy, would you draw us in to behold you in your goodness and glory? And as we behold you, would you transform us? Oh, how we need to be transformed. And thank you for your work. Thank you for your forgiveness first for how we've chosen to fall short. But thank you for your power to change us individually and as a whole church. Would you make us together as we love each other and walk together on mission together? Would you make us look like you? And would the world know the hope that there is in you?